There is a place too far for a great public research university. And we have to make sure that we continue to pull ourselves back to the core mission and what Berkeley needs to do. We would never want anybody to hear what we're doing or hear our excitement and think they no longer value curiosity-driven research. That can't happen. And we're trying to remain sensitive to that. Rich Lyons became UC Berkeley's inaugural Chief Innovation and Entrepreneurship Officer in January 2020, having previously been Dean of the Haas Business School for a decade. For the past two and a half years, he's been tying the ecosystem together in a way that makes everyone want to participate, rather than forcing them to sign up. Rich tells us about the Berkeley-affiliated funds, which uniquely all donate a share of their profits back to the institution, and talks about how he helped create a programme teaching entrepreneurship, Berkeley Changemaker, that's fast turning into one of the university's most successful miners. He also ponders why entrepreneurs often don't even realise that's what they are, with an example out of his own family home, and discusses the lessons he learned during his time as Chief Learning Officer at Goldman Sachs. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Terry. I look forward to our discussion. To start with, hopefully an easy one, can you give me an overview of innovation with some headline figures? Well, it's a big question. Thank you for framing it that way. I think I'll start with a definition. This is just my definition, but innovation is two things. It is new ideas or new combinations of old ideas, part one, put into practice, part two. So discovery, invention, those are not innovation, right? Put into practice part is important. So with that two-part definition, there is just so much going on, I think, at any modern research university. And naturally, UC Berkeley, being in the Silicon Valley area, is just on fire in terms of all the opportunities. So real quickly, we have a one-pager that's at the top 10 sources of new ventures coming out of Berkeley because there's more than 10. And so how do we organize it? The biggest one is called Skydeck, and it has over 200 startups in it at any given time, and its accelerators and its incubators. And then CRISPR, many people feel that CRISPR is the most important scientific discovery in the last decade or two. And Jennifer Doudna, one of our faculty members, just won the Nobel Prize for the CRISPR invention. That's a platform technology. So it's really transforming a lot of life science, therapeutics, and so forth. So those are just a few little hints. Amazing. I look forward to diving into quite a few of those over the course of our discussion. Where does your role fit into this structure and just how broad is your remit? Yeah, so my role didn't exist in 19 or rather 19, 20, 2019. In 2020, January is when the role was launched. Berkeley, like so many great research universities, I think its creativity in many ways is in its decentralization. It's a place that sort of eschews centralization. And a lot of the ecosystem that's developed that we can talk about has developed in this kind of decentralized creativity mode. And the idea was, look, we don't want to centralize anything, but could a little bit of intentionality around making it more than the sum of its parts, could that be valuable for Berkeley? And so that's what created the job description on the front end. I had served as dean of the business school at Berkeley for 10 years. I'm not a scholar of innovation and entrepreneurship, but you can't be dean of a business school in the Silicon Valley area and not think a lot about innovation and entrepreneurship in any event. So the job was created to pull some things together, make it more than the sum of the parts, as I said, and we're having a lot of fun doing it. My team and I have been working on this for two and a half years now. 
I want to dive into a few things before we take a more general view as well. You already mentioned Skydeck. They have a fund as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Berkeley Affiliated Funds and what makes them unique? Sure. When we talk about the ecosystem, there are lots of accelerators and incubators, classes and programs and things like that. But specifically about the kind of financial infrastructure, what does that look like? So Berkeley, like most in modern research universities, has had a lot of venture capital interest over the decades in the companies that are coming out of the campus. But there's a brand new category of venture fund that has arisen over the last five or so years at Berkeley. Some people call these shared carry funds. That's a bit jargon heavy. The word carry, if you're not into venture capital, is less clear. But let's call them shared return funds. And here's the idea. Again, launched about five years ago. The general partner, two important classes of participant in any venture fund. You've got a general partner and a limited partner. And in all of these shared return funds at Berkeley, there are now seven of them, the general partner shares, gives back to Berkeley half of its return. So the way that usually works out is the carry, the part of the total return that goes to the general partner is generally 20% of the total return. And so in all seven of these cases, half of that or 10% of the total return is hardwired back to Berkeley. It's not hand-waving, I'll make a gift, I promise. It's hardwired back to Berkeley. So that creates this sort of give back mechanism that is really important to understanding why the financial ecosystem has gained so much momentum. Is that a mechanism that you build into the contracts, letting them use the Berkeley name? Yes, very much. If you ask, well, why would any general partner want to do that? They actually have an affiliation agreement with UC Berkeley. So when you think about asset gathering, they can use that affiliation agreement. They can say we are affiliated with Berkeley. They are legally a separate entity, of course, but the affiliation agreement allows them to use the brand, which is quite valuable. And another big plus for these companies is they have, like I mentioned the Skydeck Accelerator earlier, two of these funds are connected to the Skydeck Accelerator and those funds get special access to the companies that are coming out of the Skydeck Accelerator. So that's an advantage that arm's length fund wouldn't have. And then finally, these shared carry funds or shared return funds also have access to participation rights that Berkeley owns by virtue of past licensing agreements that Berkeley has signed with startups. So often if we acquire equity as UC Berkeley in startups through a licensing agreement, it also gives us rights to future investments in later rounds for those companies. And we can, as long as these funds are affiliated with us, which all the shared return funds are, we can share those rights. So that's a third very large benefit for these funds. Does that mean that the general partners or perhaps even more so the limited partners are usually... UC Berkeley affiliated in some sort of way, maybe alumni, if they know that some of their money is going to get back to the university rather than their own pockets? I love that question. The answer is definitely yes, that a lot of alumni are very attracted to these funds, but so are a lot of the LP economics, limited partner economics of most of these funds, this one outlier, which I'll mention, but the LP economics is 100% private. So it's neat, right? I'm getting private return. I'm not giving up any of my return. And I'm also benefiting indirectly the campus. So a lot of alums really like that deal. Now, one of the shared carry funds, the GP is sharing half of its carry, but also the LPs are sharing 25% of their return. Now, those are definitely alums, right? That's a case where it's like, all right. But if you add that up, so LPs normally get 80% of the return, right? Because the GP gets 20%. If I'm giving up 25% of 80%, that's 20% of the total return, plus the 10% that's coming from the GP. That's 30% of the total return on the fund that's coming back to Berkeley. We only have one fund that looks quite like that, but 
you know, the category is expanding. It's the most recent fund that's been added to the seven. That is amazing. An important return as well. It's not small money we're talking about here. Well, hopefully not small money. Well, that's right. And our instinct was, let's just add the AUM, the assets under management in this new fund to the ones that we already had. But it's actually, it's not apples to apples. The other ones, wonderful, but 10% of the total return of the others was coming back to Berkeley, whereas 30% of the total return on this one's coming back to Berkeley. It's like 3X is potent. Hey, if I may, let me just put a footnote on exactly this conversation. So this hasn't been announced publicly. I can't give you any detail, but spurred on motivated by the fact that we have this category and it's growing so fast and it's doing so much both for the companies and the founders and for the university. We just received a gift to create an eighth shared return fund, but the gift is coming to the university and will establish the university as sole LP in a new fund where Berkeley gets all the LP return and in fact owns the paid in capital because it was a gift. So this category is growing in ways that we couldn't even have forecast two years ago. I look forward to hearing more about that when it is public. Thank you for sharing that. Another interesting recent initiative that you've launched is the Baker Bioengineering Hub. Can you talk about this one as well a bit? Sure. There's so many elements of these expanding, developing ecosystems at modern research universities. And the Baker Bioengineering Hub is like our most recent big shiny object. I think it's actually genuinely unique. And certainly unique at Berkeley, but genuinely unique in the country and I think the world. So real quickly, it's a science space. That's the most important first feature. When startups go into this space, they actually lease benches. It's like, how many benches do you need, right? We're going to be doing science in here. It's mostly life science, but life science also crossed with engineering, with material science and with other fields. It's not a pure life sciences play. So anyways, the idea is it's not office space, right? It's lab space. That's number one. Number two is any lab space at UC Berkeley, historically, that a startup or anybody generated some IP in was owned by the university. That's just the way it works. But this is like an IP safe space where the IP that's created in this building, which is a UC Berkeley building, it's not a 501c3 nonprofit, something outside. It's actually a UC Berkeley building. But with this IP safe space, the startups that are in there own all the IP from that space. And then the third one is its scale. This, there are 50 or 60 companies in there. It is just a remarkable space. It was an old art museum, old. It was a former art museum. They moved it. The architecture is absolutely stunning when you go in there. And so you walk in there, it's like, wow, have we come a long way? All these companies, they're doing their own work. And we're integrating the companies and connecting them to the university in fresh ways. So it's not just like, this looks like a private incubator. It's like, no, 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 no. It's being connected to our undergraduates, to our graduate students, to our postdoc, to our faculty. We have several faculty startups that are in there. There's also the Berkeley Research Infrastructure Commons, which I thought was quite interesting. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Thanks for asking about that. That's not unrelated to what we just talked about, the Baker Bioingenuity Hub, but it's independent of that. And so I'm going to talk about this one like I'm pitching, okay? So let me go pitch you, Terry, uh, this idea, okay? So the idea is, all right, we've all heard of the share economy, right? You own an auto, you use it 1% of the time. We've got Uber, we've got Lyft. How do we better utilize valuable assets in society or the built environment and Airbnb and so forth? So question, what is the percentage capacity utilization of scientific instruments on a UC Berkeley campus? How about on a Sunday? So in the limit, we're 90% of the way to this vision pulling out my iPhone, my phone is like mobile app. I'm a small company, startup, perhaps I don't even need to be in the Bay Area. I need a mass spectrometer. 
I need a DNA sequencer. I can't afford that kind of thing myself. I can access one on a Sunday evening over these hours at UC Berkeley for this price, fully priced. I own all the IP if I lease it over this five-hour period or 10-hour period or whenever it is. DocuSign click-through contract. It doesn't have to go to risk. All right, how, what does your insurance look like? How do we do that? Then it goes to legal and so forth. No, no, no. We, we tried to, that's why it's a platform. We're building this research infrastructure commons platform. And so if somebody said, sum it up in one sentence, I say, it AWS eyes scientific instruments on a great research university campus. Oh, that sounds cool. So going back to what we were just talking about, the Baker Bioingenuity Hub, it's like, these are great, among the best companies anywhere. It's like they could be in incubator space and, and be using bench space anywhere. But it's sort of like, ah, but I can actually access a mass spectrometer on the Berkeley campus or a DNA sequencer or all this other stuff. Sort of like, yeah, well, that's one of the infrastructural add-ons that is making the ecosystem that much more potent. I find it very interesting that when you think about innovation, you're not just thinking about innovation on campus, but also how to bring in external innovation. Well, thanks for that, because I think when we talk about the ecosystem and when we map it on our campuses, it's like, yeah, what shiny objects do we have inside the tent, right? What program, what incubator, what accelerator, what courses, and so forth. And this is opening the boundary of the tent, right? It's making it much more permeable. There was already permeability because we have lots of continuing interaction with startups and innovating companies, not just startups, but also innovating corporates. But this sort of brings that whole tent boundary to a new permeable level. How do you tie all those different parts together under one ecosystem or vision? That's all the time we have, Terry. Thank you very much for your question. <laughs> that is the thousand pound gorilla at most universities because we operate wonderfully decentralized. And again, don't centralize me, but can we bring some intentionality of coordination? And that's basically why my job was created. I think the quick answer is Think about a platform, first of all. This is actually the mantra that we're using on the Berkeley campus, right? How do we take what we've been doing, all this distributed success in lots of different domains, and create platforms that serve all of us, create those out of the distributed success or fragmented success that we already have? And I think that's what networks and platforms, businesses and technologies are all about. It's sort of like if their network effects on the platform then more people use it, the more value you have yourself in using it. That's what I'm an economist. That's what network economics is all about. So the idea I think is it's always somebody could say, look, you got to put a benefits lens on everything you're doing. All right. Every potential user has to see a benefit. It's okay. Yeah, that is true. But if you create a platform that has these kinds of network effects, then the whole campus starts saying, Hey, I'd rather play than not play. I'd rather participate than not participate. Right. And the silos start to see enough of a value proposition in coordinating and building a common platform. A couple of examples, the research infrastructure commons we just talked about, right? Were some labs doing this before? Yes, they were. And it was incredibly clunky. You have to go through risk. You have to go through legal. I mean, companies were walking away. It's just like, really? We're five weeks down the road. We don't even know when we're going to be able to use the machine. Now there's a platform. We got 20 labs that have put themselves on the platform. We didn't force anybody to go on the platform. And another example is internship for undergrads. It's sort of like build a platform where we can all benefit together. Or how about projects? We have all these courses that take projects and do kind of commercialization and translational research based on those projects. So yeah, you can have every course sourcing projects on its own, or you can create a project platform where all of a sudden now people with projects are saying, I'm going to fire my project onto the platform. So the users of projects, these courses and so forth are saying, 
this is much better than what we used to have. That makes sense. I think originally when I asked in my questions that I sent to you, I also asked whether there was a risk of the individual parts losing their uniqueness. But from the sounds of it, it's almost strengthening their uniqueness by playing together. I think it does. At the end of the day, it's discretionary. Berkeley is not a you-must-participate kind of a place. So any lab that does not want to put itself on the Berkeley Research Infrastructure Commons, the Berkeley RIC doesn't have to. If there are programs or courses that is like, no, I've got my clientele for projects. I don't really need to be on that platform. That's just fine. It really is about, look, you got to win the hearts and minds by making the platform valuable enough. And that works with the ethos at Berkeley. You've mentioned the intentionality about innovation already. How can a university be more intentional about innovation, specifically collaborating with the private sector? Well, there's so much of that already going on and it changes every day. So there's always, I think, more and better. I, ultimately, just a couple of quick points. One, an obvious one, navigability. Like when we show people, look at this array of opportunities at Berkeley, it's like really just much larger than it was 10 years ago. How the heck do I navigate? How, <laughs> who do you have to know to do this, right? And that's a big deal because it's just, I mean, I was dean of the business school for 10 years. You might think, well, at least you had your finger on the pulse of the ecosystem. 60% of it, I knew almost nothing about. There were chunks that obviously I knew a lot about. So it's navigability, I think is, and just to give you a concrete example, it's simple, but we create, I mentioned it before, a one pager, the top 10 sources of venture flow from UC Berkeley. Here's the name of the program. Here's what they do. Here's the contact person, email, right? It's like, Simple. Even people that have been working with Berkeley a lot as outside stakeholders and users, they might know five, six, seven of these, but they didn't know about all 10 and they're not. See, okay. So that's just navigability is number one. I think number two is companies say, oh, we're customer centric, right? Well, all right. What does greater user centricity of a university look like? Now we are not businesses. So the idea that we are, you know, the way we drive our mission is to serve businesses better. Sort of like, Look, our mission is a little different than that. But at the end of the day, our mission is impact. The deep why of a university is impact. How we do that is teaching research and service. And when you start to frame the university that way, it's like, how do we dial up our impact? How do we make mission advances by stepping even more deeply into innovation and entrepreneurship and connecting with outside users and players that can basically they're force multipliers in the impact space. That frame helps us even at the university to say, we can stay aligned with our mission. We can continue to do the right thing, but we're going to magnify our impact. You've previously spoken about the fact that UC Berkeley focuses on inclusivity versus the exclusivity of private universities like Harvard. How does that approach impact the entrepreneurial culture on campus? First of all, Berkeley scale, Berkeley runs at the undergraduate level, right? So thinking undergrads now, at roughly five times the scale. Every elite private university you would come up with, right? If you name 10 great private universities, they're all sort of 7,000, 8,000, 8,500 total undergraduates. Berkeley's about 40,000. So we're talking 5X, all right? That's just bodies. But then you actually look at the demographics. And in fact, Berkeley's got 50% more, just in percentage terms, 50% more low-income students. So if you measure that by Pell eligibility, there are different ways to measure this, but 50% more. So instead of something like 16, 17, 18, 19%, Berkeley's up at 26, 27, 28%, right? So if you're 5X the size and you're 1.5 times in percentage terms, low income, 
of course, that's just one dimension, socioeconomic diversity. But okay, so that's a starting point. Then Berkeley also, the idea of it's a for all kind of a place that, you know, we're public universe. And so the idea is we're really here to serve all, every university, public and private, is trying to be more inclusive in the way that it delivers innovation and entrepreneurship. We're not the only ones pushing hard on that. But we start with these initial conditions of size and percentage low income that are quite different from others. And then the last point that I would make is we've made a big effort to try and make the way we teach entrepreneurship more inclusive. And real quickly, it's something we could talk about more if you're interested, but we launched a program called The Berkeley Changemaker. We're not the first university to use the word changemaker, but we have registered the trademark Berkeley Changemaker. You put the word Berkeley in front of the word changemaker, exciting things happen because of Berkeley's history and ethos. All right. So there are a lot of undergraduates that don't see themselves as entrepreneurs, as founders, as venture capitalists and so forth, right? It's like they do that. Other people do that. They come in that way. Most 18, 19, 20 year olds would right? But change making, we launched a course called Doug Berkeley Changemaker two summers ago. It's like proof is in the pudding. Is it resonating? Over 500 incoming students signed up for the course. And change making is a frame within which one can learn how to be more entrepreneurial in their thinking. It's an embracing way to get people started in this direction. When I did my research for this, I think I came across Berkeley Changemaker. I wasn't quite sure what to make with the term. But it sounds like it's a really interesting initiative, actually. It's growing very fast. In two years, it's reached 15%, 1-5% of all Berkeley undergraduates. It's becoming a minor on campus. It's like, there are a lot of minors that are very successful, where it's sort of like, look, this minor works with these majors and so forth. But Berkeley Changemaker, which is three content pieces, right? Somebody said, well, you're hand-waving a bit, Changemaker, change. It's three things. Every single, we now have 17 courses in this program. All of them share three things. Critical thinking, communication, collaboration, right? Critical thinking, communication, collaboration. On collaboration, it's like team skills, right? It's like there's a thing called team skills. Most 18-year-olds don't have a sense for that. Communication, especially oral. And critical thinking are problem-solving skills. So anyways, those are things that cut across many different majors, arguably all of them. And we think the minor is going to become the biggest minor on campus within a few years. Wow, that is amazing. Perhaps on that note, what are some of the opportunities in UC Berkeley's ecosystem at the moment? Many, and it would be true of every university every counterpart of mine that you would talk to, I think. And part of it is like, well, what do you put your finger on? Because there are hotspots all over the place, right? I'll give you a couple of examples. Back when I was dean, we launched a couple of dual degree programs. These were undergraduate. Engineering plus business, cross-training engineering plus business, a program called MET, Management, Entrepreneurship, and Technology. And then more recently, we launched a life science plus business dual degree program. And these things have just exploded in terms of demand. Students really love this cross-training idea. And I think historically, you often got science-based or engineering-based undergrads saying, well, I'm going to go on and get my MBA, which is a fine trajectory. But I think when you code business and science in an 18-year-old's mind at the same time, it's not like two different lobes, two different concepts, two different... It's, it really integrates in a quite fundamental way. So I point to that as number one, this kind of cross-training. Now we have graduate programs that are master's programs, MBA plus at master's in engineering. And it, anyways, but the, the, this cross-training category, I think is red hot. That's number one. And then I think the second one is how are we, look, incubators, accelerators, Berkeley has a lot of it, as I said, so do other universities. I think 
there's a lot of magic in at the top of the funnel. How do you get more students that don't even know there is a funnel or know there's a funnel, but again, it's they do that. Other people do that. I don't do that. That's not what I do, right? Sort of what get them to look in the funnel, get them to sort of get their hands dirty, get them an internship and a startup, right? We created a program, a quick example on Canvas. It's called the ACE program, Accelerating Careers and Entrepreneurship. It's focused on undergrads and it's internships. And most of them are unpaid, but we have so many startups coming through Berkeley that there are just tons of opportunities. And I was speaking to the woman who runs Skydeck, who's really running this program on the front end. And I said, so how many interns are we placing? I thought she was going to say 20 or 30 or 50. She said 800 last week. (laughs) Wow. And and 1,400 undergraduates came to the information session to find out what this thing actually was. And so those are situations where it's like a lot of young people not knowing that they want to be a founder and exactly what they want to do, but it's sort of like, I want to demystify this startup thing. And it's like, well, we're going to plug you into a startup. It's the best way to do it. I wasn't expecting you to say 800 either. That's kind of amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I think the energy is on the ground. And so providing these platforms of opportunity for undergrads to jump into it, that's the second category of very exciting new opportunity. I'm always afraid to ask, but what are the challenges that you're facing at the moment? Well, there are challenges always. So I think part of it, I see this myself, basic research Curiosity-driven research, you don't have Bell Labs anymore. It's like universities is where that happens. You know, when we find out that the universe is expanding at an expanding rate, and Saul Perlmutter, one of Berkeley physicists, won a Nobel Prize, we're like teaching the world. It's sort of like, that probably isn't going to be an app or a product or a therapeutic anytime soon. But this is really fundamental. So when you start thinking about some of this downstream innovation and entrepreneurship stuff, you know, part of it is, look, if we don't stay connected to the mission of the university, right, then there is a place too far down this road. I'll give you a super concrete example. Baker Bioingenuity Hub. We've already talked about it. Now, you could imagine an instantiation of the Baker Bioingenuity Hub where it's sort of like, that's really cool. And it looks just like a private incubator that leases bench space. So why isn't it just that? Well, because we've got programming that integrates learning opportunities, development opportunities for our undergrads in there, internships and things like that for our graduates, postdocs. So you start layering on the mission. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges is I get as excited, you can probably tell by the way I'm talking, by all this stuff that's happening. But at the end of the day, there is a place too far for a great public research university. And we have to make sure that we continue to pull ourselves back to the core mission and what Berkeley needs to do. We would never want anybody to hear what we're doing or hear our excitement and think they no longer value curiosity-driven research. That can't happen. And we're trying to remain sensitive to that. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't want to get caught out by your own success. I won't mention the university, but I remember reading an article in It was quite a while ago, maybe 10 years ago, and it had university name, Inc. Boom. Need I say more, right? It's sort of like, what are the values and mission that define us? And so anyways, that's not a challenge in the sense that it's sinking us. It's a challenge in the sense that keep an eye open for this stuff. A big change that's recently happened is July 1st, UC changed its rules to account for innovation and impact when assessing promotion and tenure. It's obviously early days as we're recording this. about three weeks ago. How do you hope this will shift the culture at Berkeley? And so much you can speak to it across the system. 
Yeah, I think it was a real red letter day. It's a big change in policy. I saw so many other people did the memo that came out from the, so the University of California has 10 campuses, as you surely know, and there's a system-wide office. So the system-wide provost, the system-wide chief academic officer sent a memo to all the chancellors, the presidents of the underlying 10 campuses. We use the term chancellor. And the memo basically said, we are going to start to wait positively innovation and entrepreneurship activity and promotion and tenure decisions for faculty. Now, there are lots of different decision categories that a university makes, but in some people's minds, none are so fundamental as sort of promotion and tenure decisions of your faculty. It's an absolutely like the keys to the kingdom kind of domain. And that memo sent a fascinating message. Now, to get back to your question, I think that memo was itself a reflection of how much culture change has already happened. It's not like the provost stepped out and said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have arrows in my back and the regions are going to like this. It's sort of like, no, you had a ton of culture change over the last 10 or 15 years. I think this will add to it in an important way. What caused some of that culture change in the last 10 or 15 years? Well, I think we created, and so have other universities, but we created proof of concept funding, right? Sort of translational research funding. So faculty that want to take their fundamental basic science and do some translational work, not necessarily themselves, but like in their labs, right? Oh, I've got a postdoc that's going to do this work or a grad student, right? It's not necessarily, oh my gosh, he just took Saul Perlmutter off the basic research line. And now he's doing, trying to make a product out of the expanding universe or something, right? It's like, oh gosh, don't do that. All right. So the reason I mentioned this is it's not a ton of money, but it's a chunk. It's like a hundred thousand dollars for three years. So this launched at Berkeley about 10, 12 years ago, and seven or so per year, so like 70 or 80 of these have been given out. I and other people are on the selection committee. But this last year, um, there were seven given out, but 43 faculty put in an application. And this is specific. It's not start a company. Do you, you want some money to start? No, it is. Do you want some money to do translational research so that you can bring your science, mostly science, closer to market, right? And the provost was championing it. And lots of the senior most people on campus is like, let's celebrate the winners of this award and celebrate the people that are applying. Anyways, that's just one example of the kind of thing that over years it starts to send a message that impact through innovation and entrepreneurship from our greatest scientists and other faculty is a good thing and is mission advancing. And so I think the fact that there actually is going to be a section in these tenure and promotion cases that says this person's doing that, as opposed to 20 years ago, it might've been a situation where somebody says, I don't think I'm going to mention this in my tenure case. My self-evaluation that will go into my tenure case, like I'm going to leave that out. Some people might react negatively to it. More people are likely to react negatively to it than positively to it. I'll just leave it out. That's not going to be happening in the future. That's a strange thought that it would be weighted negatively if you've done any kind of translational research. Well, sorry to interrupt, but let me try and justify that. From my side, I've been a dean as an academic administrator. It's like faculty are capable people. They have lots of opportunities. And there's something called a conflict of commitment policy. It's like faculty have very little control. It's not, you do not have to clock in at eight. You do not have to clock out at five and so forth. Right? So there's a lot of degrees of freedom, which is appropriate for creative researcher types. But the idea is, wait, you spent like 70% of your time building a company last year. 
and you were a full-time faculty member and we paid you as a full-time faculty member. And then you did it again and again and again. At what point does it's like conflict of commitment? Your research went from five papers a year to one paper a year. Your published work, or I'm using extreme examples, right? Yeah. But it's sort of like we're in a job description where conflict of commitment is a real thing. And faculty do need to manage that. And I, so I think in an environment where you can't prove that you've been doing less research because you've got all this outside activity going on, then it's kind of like, okay, maybe I won't mention I guess that goes back to the idea that you need to be wary of the runaway success challenge that you still need to do the foundational research and you still need to be a university. <laughs> Great point. I think that that's it. That's really key. We've talked quite a bit about where students fit in. Where do postdocs and perhaps even alumni fit into your vision for the ecosystem? We and other universities were taking a much more of a systems thinking approach than we ever did before. You start in building ecosystems by saying, hey, we need some courses and programs for our students. And then you start realizing, oh, we've got some alums that are willing to advise the students or do some mentoring. And then you start to, oh, we could bring some projects in from some corporations or some projects in from startup ideas of various kinds. And then you start saying, look, what are all the player categories? And how do we build platforms that integrate the player categories in ever deeper ways? And I mentioned earlier this idea of a platform that basically builds out projects. So if you thought about the supply and economy, so if you thought about the supply side to use econ jargon of that platform, it's sort of like, well, who's putting projects in? Well, you've got an awful lot of corporations that would say, I've got some projects I'd love to have people work on, but you'd have VCs that might say, ah, there's this pet project we think might go somewhere. Can we get some work done on it? Or founders that are, you know, it's not what they're currently working on, but they'd like some incubation of an idea, et cetera. Like, for example, I'll, I'll go to postdocs. Berkeley, like other great research universities, we have about 1,500 tenure-line faculty, the sort of core faculty, right, that are trying to get tenure or already have tenure, about 1,500 across the whole university. At any given time, Berkeley has about 1,500 postdocs on campus. It, these are people with doctoral degrees, right? Postdoctoral, they are PhDs. Now, not all of them are in STEM fields or obviously connectable to innovation and entrepreneurship, although increasingly our humanities and social sciences are connecting to what we're doing. We could come back to that. But the idea was, well, okay, so how are we integrating them into the ecosystem? And so we just recently built a program called PostX, where we're going to integrate them in various ways, but in part by just demystifying them when they arrive. When you onboard a postdoc, are they taught a little something about the ecosystem. There's something that's actually even predated this postdocs program called the Berkeley Postdoc Entrepreneurship Program, BPEP. And so there are these little clubs, but a lot of postdocs don't even know that these clubs are there. So going back to the macro level, the idea is, all right, systems thinking, lots of users, lots of player types. How do we build it all out with a platform mentality in ways that keep the ecosystem developing as widely as we can get it developing. You've already mentioned you're an economist. You were dean of the Haas School of Business before you took on your current job in January 2020. How did you get started in innovation and entrepreneurship? What first piqued your interest? Well, I grew up in a town called Los Altos, which is right among many towns, like right in the heart of what people think of as Silicon Valley. There were people in my high school whose parents were Fairchild semiconductor founders. And I, my, I do not come from a tech family, but so that was sort of in the water. 
And I had a general contractor's license when I was younger and I built hot tubs and decks. I had a little construction business. Anyways, my two older brothers, seven and eight years older than I am. And I remember my parents used to take us to Half Moon Bay and we'd fill this big red station wagon, this woody, you know, painted sides with pumpkins around in October. And then we'd bring them back and my brothers and I would sell pumpkins before Halloween in the US, the end of our block. Anyways, I come from a family that's geared that way. So that was in my blood. But it wasn't really until I got to Berkeley and got to see, wow, there's a lot more to this game than anything that I'd thought about. And so I think, especially as dean of the business school, it's kind of like, well, this is just innovation at some level. It's where value comes from, right? New ideas put into practice. It's like, is there another source? Is there another source of advantage? Now we can talk about small or sustaining innovation and breakthrough innovation. We can start to parse the space, but it's like continuing to do what we've always done is not how a society advances, either, you know, in terms of its culture and civilization or in terms purely of its economics. So I think that really wide angle is like, this is the root source. And how do we understand it better? One last comment, if I could, on this topic, and this one's more personal. Okay. So my daughter is first year student at another university. She's very happy. Two years ago, so she's 19 right now. Two years ago, she's doing the application thing. And she asked me, she says, hey, dad, what do you think I should write essays on? And I said, well, why don't you write an essay on the company you started, the company you founded? She said, I don't have a company. I said, Nicole's her name. I said, Nicole, you do actually. You, like many of your friends, you sell used clothing, sweatshirts, stuff like that on the internet, right? You have to price it. You have to ship it. If it ships too late, you have to deal with a bad customer review. It's like, that's a business. She said, that's, I haven't started a business. Nicole. Your dad is the chief entrepreneurship officer, okay? Yes, you have. Anyways, the simple point is people do this stuff and they don't recognize what it is. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, everybody's in the game now, the gig economy, we all get it. We're all entrepreneurs now. No, we still don't all get it. Even those of us that are doing it in our lives. And so ultimately that's part of it. It's like this epiphany, this light goes off and it's like, man, this connects to so much more of what life is about than just this startup and that series b finance speaking of epiphanies and learnings you were chief learning officer at goldman sachs what lessons did you bring back from those i think two years it was you worked for them so the big one was about culture i became a culture nut at goldman sachs and whatever one thinks about that company's culture they are very intentional about culture and as an academic most of my life has been in the academic world i'd never seen what intentionality looked like. And because I was the chief learning officer, I was in the HR group. And so I was interacting mostly with the senior most HR, they called it human capital management, the HCM group. And so I got to see what levers are pulled to manage culture in the company, right? It's like, how do we onboard? You want to see intentionality? Here's intentionality for you, right? It's just like, wow, never even seen this. And I, so I think a lot of people from my industry, by which I mean presidents of universities or deans of colleges and units, it's like, we were not geared to think deeply about culture. So that was the big, I came back and maybe it's like to somebody with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but almost everything I'm thinking about is has this cultural dimension. It's like, how do you get faculty culturally to be more oriented in this direction? How do you shift the culture around this, that, or the other thing? It's hard to think about it for me, a change management project that doesn't have a big culture dimension to it. My next question, and you're probably in a better position than most people when I ask them this, but if you had a magic wand, what is the one thing you would change about innovation and entrepreneurship? 
Well, I think I sort of hinted at it before. I think I would like it if everyone would recognize the root source quality of innovation and entrepreneurship, by which I mean, it's like, you could say, oh, there's innovation and entrepreneurship, there's operations, there's marketing, there's what technology, but it's sort of like they're in different dimensions. It's like, no, I think when you start thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship, as I started, you know, new ideas put into practice, it's like, this is the root source of how societies evolve. Whether you're thinking about the private sector or the public sector or the civic sector, this is not just a commercial economic point. And I think the more people can see its richness and its very general relevance, that would be what I would love to have happen. That's a good wish. We've already mentioned a few research. I think you've mentioned Jennifer Dowdner, obviously, Chris Burney. She's founded Mammoth Biosciences, among others. But can you give me some examples of UC Berkeley companies? Sure. Happy to. They're long lists, but the earlier vintage companies that we've all heard of, if you thought about Apple, right? Steve Jobs, everybody's heard of. Steve Wozniak, fewer people, but Steve Wozniak is 100% Berkeley. And many people feel that Steve Wozniak was in some ways a technical genius behind some of the early Apple development. Intel, Andy Grove, Berkeley guy, Tesla, Mark Tarpening. That's a little more recent, of course, but Musk did not found Tesla. Mark Tarpening is a Berkeley guy. He wasn't the sole founder of Tesla, but in fact, Mark Tarpening is still an advisor for a Skydeck Accelerator. Imagine if you were doing a battery company or a mobility company and your principal advisor in an accelerator is Mark Tarpening. It's like, oh, that sounds valuable. Thank you very much. But more recently, companies like Databricks. So AI, Databricks has been a terrifically successful company came out of Berkeley AI, Berkeley Eeks, electrical engineering, computer science. And in fact, just a quick Databricks story, I won't mention their names, but it's very public, but two of the faculty that co-founded Databricks each made $25 million gifts back to Berkeley to create a new, they're calling it the gateway project in data science, which is their expertise is. So that sort of feedback loop back into the strength of the universe. Anyways, Databricks, you mentioned Mammoth Biosciences, I think there are many really cool companies that are coming out of baseline CRISPR technology, and that's really important for Berkeley. And then even something like more on the consumer space, like Warby Parker, one of the, Dave Galoa, one of the founders of Warby Parker's at Berkeley undergrad alum. Yeah. It's quite a varied range of companies, which is always interesting to hear. Yeah, I think that's going to be true of most great research universities, right? There's just so much stuff we do and the students we bring in have such varied interests. And just underscore the point again, it's like we talk a lot about the private sector, but there's a lot of public sector innovation that's going on. There's a lot of civic sector innovation going on. I served for a while on a, one of our alums created a university in Africa, in Ghana. It's called Ashesi University, A-S-H-E-S-I. And it's been running for 20 years. And it's just, it's a breakthrough success story. And it's, anyway, you'd have to call this innovation and entrepreneurship, right? You yeah. created an enterprise and built it, obviously, with the help of a lot of other people. Anyway, so I think as we start thinking about how wide angle a Berkeley is and bringing the humanists to the table, right? Bringing the more sort of human-centered design, bringing the social scientists to the table. That's part of, I think, the next wave. Well, you're definitely the first guest I've had on the podcast who's talked about someone who went on to found a university. <laughs> so that's very unique. Yes. Patrick Awua is his name, and he's just an extraordinary human being. He really sounds it. We are almost out of time. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want people to know about UC Berkeley? Well, you touched on so many of these elements. I think 
Here's one of the things to conclude with, and it relates to several of the things that we talked about. Ultimately, if you say, look, how do we sustainably fund great research universities in the future? And when you start looking, so we mentioned these shared return funds earlier, right? And we also talked briefly about, hey, Berkeley acquires equity in startups as part of its licensing negotiations, right? So those are two separate equity instruments. Those are two separate ways that Berkeley benefits from the big nonlinear payoffs that sometimes happen in the startup world. We also now, for some of our incubators at Skydeck and elsewhere, part of the quid pro quo back to the university is a little piece of equity. So we're building out these equity portfolios. You have to make sure to do it in ways that remain consistent with the mission and values of the university. But I'll just, you know, one of the things, the macro, we didn't really talk about this, but I'll close with this. It's possible that if you looked at all these sort of equity, these ways for Berkeley to participate and all the value and benefits that it is creating through equity participation, that that stream of revenue back to Berkeley, as lumpy as it will be, will on average be as large as what the state of California gives to Berkeley within a generation and maybe within 10 or 15 years. Now, that's a bold statement. Somebody could say, show me the math. I want to see what this is looking like. But if you actually looked at the trajectory of those shared return funds, and then you looked at that gift that just came in to create a fund where Berkeley's the sole LP, and then you start looking at some of these other new pipes through which Berkeley's acquiring equity, you start realizing, oh, maybe it's worth thinking about. Well, I think those are some very good closing words, and I look forward to following that journey. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. I appreciate it. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at GU Venturing, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thehelis at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Do 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 do